If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Welcome to yet another episode of Doctors Unmasked. My name is Dr. Masi Korir. This podcast always aims at, you know, bringing you the other side of doctors, that bit of doctors that um, is not always obvious out in the public. And today I have the very first dentist on our podcast, and that's Dr. Anba Ganatra. She's a dental surgeon, but now she's a dentist in public health. She works in Gatundu. She'll tell us more about that. And on top of that, she is the Deputy National Treasurer of the Kenya Medical Practitioners, Pharmacists and Dentists Union, which in short we just call the Doctors' Union. Anbar has very many stories about her experiences, having trained outside Kenya, then coming back to work in Kenya, and her motivation to be in the Doctors' Union and also in the Dental Association. Dr. Karibusana. Thank you so much, Dr. Masi Korir. Okay. So what drove you to train in dentistry outside Kenya and not in the country? Um, I've always wanted to be a dentist. I wanted to be a dentist since I was nine years old. And at the time when I was applying for dentistry, it was difficult to get in locally. And a lot of our colleagues had studied in Manipal in India. And the reputation of that university was very good. So that was what drove me to apply and I got in and I decided why not? It's an opportunity to be uh, outside the country, meet new people and yeah, that's what made me go abroad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That's very early on at nine years. What is it that made you want to be a dentist? What Was it any particular experience? Actually, I remember the people who used to come to teach us how to brush came to school at that time and I got very interested in my own oral health and uh, I used to keep observing my own teeth. And I remember I noticed a cavity in my tooth at that age. And I followed it up until I went to the dentist. And I loved the way he took care of me. And that's what motivated me to follow the same career. I used to also take care of my brother's teeth. And I remember extracting their teeth when I was young. <laughs> as in with cotton, obviously, not, not with the instruments. But I remember when their teeth used to shake, I used to be the one to remove it for them. So, yeah, I was always fascinated with teeth. Yeah, You started being a dentist quite early on. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And so what... what um, obviously, you have come back to the country. You've seen how the dental training is or the medical training is in the country. How does it compare with India? So the training here, I would say, because the number of students is less compared to the the class that I went through, which was 100 students, the training here is more intense. Um of course, we, we learn the same theory, but in terms of practical experience, I think the dentists here get more exposed practically because there's not many specialist students. 
where I was studying in Manipal, we had a lot of uh, postgraduates. So they would do the more complicated cases and we would be uh, made to do the simple cases. Whereas the dentists here, while they are still studying, the undergraduate students are exposed to a variety of cases. I think that's how it compares. But in terms of the basic, the scientific knowledge, I think we are both at the same level. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You told me something that was quite interesting about um, on your graduation, that um, you are the country India was graduating 17,000 yes. um, dental students at the time. Yes. So India, I mean, the number of medical schools and dental schools in India is very large. So the number of dentists graduating in a year is also very large. And that's what makes India the largest exporter of dentists. Like majority of the dentists move abroad to US, to Australia, to UK. So yes, dentistry and medicine is um, quite competitive to get into, but they also have a lot of um, schools there. Yes, mm -hmm. yeah. So you're told you're 17,000, so... <laughs> yeah, so we were, we were told that, you know, um, it's actually, you have to stand out. Like, you're so many of you graduating, so you have to stand out. It doesn't mean anything. And re in the reality of the situation is that India has an over, sadly, oversupply of dentists who want to leave the country, yet they, they, don't, they have an artificial oversupply, something that we will talk about that we're facing in Kenya as well. Yeah, so we were made to feel <laughs> that, okay... You've made it, but really you have to do a lot more, you mm -hmm. know, to stand out. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. W was it your plan to come back and practice in Kenya? Yes. Um, I never had a plan of staying back in India. I'm born and brought up in Kenya. So after I graduated, I actually didn't think of any other country. I just thought of Kenya. A lot of my classmates in India applied to go to US at that time, Australia, uh, Canada and most of us Kenyans, none. We all came back to Kenya. I mean, I think Kenya is just a beautiful country, and we we always felt that this was where we were going to end up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so. so, did you have uh, or did you go through um, rough patch now? Because what I see most of the time, people who started outside mm -hmm. coming back to get into the society and into the system mm -hmm. of the people who've trained in Kenya they get a rough and a bumpy ride at the beginning. Was that your experience? Yes, it was, definitely. Like I said, uh, my training in a lot of complicated cases was very minimal. And when I was doing my internship in Kenyatta, I actually struggled because there were some things I had not learned in my undergraduate uh, and the dentists who had graduated from here were already proficient in those procedures, something like um, maxillofacial surgery, extraction of wisdom teeth. We had not done much of that in India, so I actually struggled. But the thing was I had very nice internship classmates, like those who had studied locally, so we would practice together. They would help out, and even the, the consultants would always be very helpful. I had to read a lot. I'm not going to lie. I had to go home and read. I felt like I was read. My reading had just started. Yeah, mm -hmm. so I had to read a lot. Yeah, but you you made it at the end of it. Yes, I did have a lot. Of, uh, I had to do a little bit of extra time during my internship, but I'm I'm very appreciative of it because it uh, improved my skills and. When I went out to Gatundu later to be a dentist, at least I had the skills with me and I didn't have to worry that I don't have a consultant around me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm. But then immediately after you graduated, you got married. How was it balancing those two lives? Um, I would say I was lucky in the sense that um, 
my husband understood that I had to uh, complete internship and I had to uh, get uh, my licensing done. So yes, he he was very supportive. It was difficult to manage the family expectations, though, because um, there's always that, you know, you're a daughter-in-law and you have to manage the cooking and you have to manage the house. And I had to do calls. So, yes, it was tough. But um, I think I pushed through because I really wanted it. Like, I really wanted to. I didn't want to fail in either. So I may, I pushed myself that, OK, I will manage the home as was expected and I'll manage what is expected in internship yeah yeah from that whole experience when you look back mm. what um what are some of the lessons that have made and mm. by the person that is here today uh, uh I think some of the lessons are life is not short <laughs> so we should not look at it like there's a checklist that you have to take, you know, or I have to finish my graduation, then I have to get married, then I have to have kids. Those are like tick boxes that we are told ever since we are young. And that's not what life is. Like, okay, I would say at least graduate, get your basic skills. After that, take your time to explore, take your time to understand yourself. Because up until you graduate, you're still in such a structured system that you're not actually exploring and understanding yourself like all through from primary school high school and you know studying your degree first degree you're in a structured environment so I would say after that take advantage of a little bit of lack of structure and explore and understand yourself yeah that's the learning lesson I have yeah mm -hmm. okay mm -hmm. and is this um I know okay we have different communities Christian community Hindu yeah. Muslim communities, is this a sort of checklist expectation that cuts across or is it heavy in one of these communities? Um, I think from what I've understood, a lot of communities, even in Kenya, put a lot of pressure on marriage, I think. Uh, but I feel the Muslim community places a more heavy emphasis on it that, you know, you have to get married and especially they, they want to emphasize that you need to get married early. It's um, actually a recommendation of our Prophet Wasallam that you should be married. So I think the, the community, the minute they see someone who is ready to earn and can support a family, they're like, okay, no, no. The next thing that you have to do is get married and then you have to have kids. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I feel that the Muslim community places a lot of pressure on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. But you've not um, fully bowed down to this pressure. How do you then manage to still live to your potential mm -hmm. or to start chasing to your actual, actual potential, mm -hmm. but still meet the expectations of the society? Um, I would say it's a difficult and delicate balance because um, you, you have to keep um, yourself happy and also the family around you wants, wants to see you happy in their way. So I wouldn't say you have to bow down to the pressure. I would just say, first, understand yourself. And the minute you understand yourself, when anyone tells you anything that they think you need to do, you'll be able to either just listen to it and accept it or listen to it and just dismiss it without hurting anyone. So the, the thing is, you need to understand what you want first. And whatever happens around you, whatever noise, I call it, that is around you should not affect you from your goals, your dreams, your desires. Yes, it, it can be a background noise. But I mean, who doesn't have that? We all have that in all forms. At our workplace, we have some disturbance. We have it in our 
you know, what, commute to work. So we just learn to live with it and still focus on our personal goals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was reading through um, divorce or death of a spouse is one of those things that are ranked very high in situations that or as, as one of the things that really can affect somebody's life significantly. Mm-hmm. Did divorce um, change you negatively or did you see this as a point to rise above to get something else? So, like, I feel society labels divorce as a failure. And I want us to change that narrative completely because if you th- if you look at it from a logical point, it's two people who come together to form, uh, to start a life and build something. It's the same way we start businesses together. We get into partnerships, we start businesses. Of course, in marriage, there's love involved, but businesses fail as well. And that doesn't impact anyone so negatively or it doesn't label them as a divorcee. We we have business partnerships that f- fail or I mean, just end and the people go their own ways because maybe the business is not growing in the direction that they wanted it to. So in the same way, a marriage is actually a partnership and both of you need to grow. And you may reach a point where you both desire different things and it's okay to say this is what we want and there's no need to label us. We were we were together at one point and now we're not together. So I would even say we need to remove this whole label of being a divorcee. I, I, don't, I don't even use it myself. I say I'm single and I call myself happily single. Yeah. Because okay. mm-hmm. I think um, there's a stig- stigmatization, particularly mm-hmm. to women who have divorced. And women really struggle to live or to, you know, um, overcome that label and the stigma that comes with it and worse for a woman who has children. I totally agree with you. The stigmatization is really quite heavy and um, I know people may be even in situations which they're not happy and because of that stigma they are not able to leave but the advice I can give you is you can rise above that stigma. You can and the human mind is very, what do I call it, volatile. Like, people don't even remember my past. Like, they just see me as what I am today. So you yourself as well, you need to be able to, I would say, it's called synaptic pruning, they call it. Like, you know, your brain, you should be able to refresh it and be like, this is who I am today. You'll take the learning lessons from the past, but you don't stay in the past. And you just present yourself as who you are today. And society will... Adjust, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And you seem to be, you know, on, um, is it a fast path to rediscovering yourself and getting involved in all of these things from the dental association, from the union, from, you know, the Dent Connect? How do you manage to juggle all of these things? <laughs> um, so, like I, uh, like I said, I mean, it is heavy. It is heavy work for me, but... Uh, the first thing I do is I do something called time blocking. So I focus on one task at a time and I block days out. So one day is particularly uh, blocked out for my work in Gatundu South. And that means it doesn't matter if it takes me the whole day up to the night. I have to finish whatever is required. And then I have to time block for the other 
um, you know, duties that I have. And that really helps me because when I'm focused on one task, I'm not thinking about anything else. I'm not thinking about my business. I'm not thinking about my patients. I'm just thinking about what I'm doing now. So that really helps me. And um, I have the right team on board. I delegate a lot of tasks and I don't feel shy to delegate. So, yeah, that's how I manage. Um, you said you asked me about how I got into it. Mm-hmm. I I've always been passionate and I've always ha- been wanted to be a leader. And even when I was in university, I used to love organizing programs. I used to love doing magazines. And I think those are my strengths. So when I finally got the opportunity to dive into it, I, I just took it. And yeah, let's see where it takes me. Yeah. So how did you come across the union? And I know the campaigns were rigorous. They were heated. We even had a debate how did you manage and eventually, you know, get a seat? Um, so the the union, I would say prior to this year, I had participated in union activities in around 2014 um, in Campbell County because there was a time when we were facing a lot of um, salary issues and, um, you know, contract, uh, that we were, contracts that we were not happy with. So at that point in time, I was involved, but from the background. Um this time round, I was invited to be part of the collective bargaining agreement writing, and I accepted because, I mean, it was something new, something challenging. I said, why not? While I was involved in that process, I got to know about elections, and yes, it was a very uh, heated election, I would say. It was the first time we had a universal suffrage election, and I think it taught me a lot because... Um, First of all, you have to appeal to the people. You have to understand the systems. You have to know how to reach the people and make them believe in you. And that's a skill that you have to acquire fast. So I I, I sort of like shut myself out for three weeks towards the elections. And that's all I focused on. I had my father's support. He, he told me how to, you know, where to focus on, which, what kind of campaign team I should have. Because... One thing about me is I don't have a lot of local connections because I didn't study locally. So not many people had even heard of me. The only people who knew me were those from Campbell County. And I think that was at least a good thing because of my work that I've done in Campbell County, they could vouch for me. So if people would ask my colleagues in Campbell, who is Dr. Ganatra, they would tell them. But apart from that, I had to make a major effort on making people get to know me because if they don't know you, they're not going to vote for you. So, yeah, I had to understand the doctors, what they were looking for and present it like I can offer it to you. Yeah. And, and you actually made it. Yeah. Yes. Um, so I know one of the thoughts or one of the things that people are saying was, you know, we've not had any Indian doctor or a doctor of an Indian descent running in the union or having any office in the union. And I know you are discouraged a lot, you know, told, you know, you probably cannot make uh, make it. Yes. Where did you persist? Okay, I, I like to be challenged. <laughs> I think that's my personality. When someone tells me I can't do something, I, oh, okay, I look at the goal and I feel if it's something I can achieve and it's something I want to achieve because my intentions are pure, I... 
I don't believe in limitations. So it doesn't matter. Like people did tell me that you will not make it. But there were very many people who told me you will. So I chose to listen to them. And um, I had colleagues in the union who are also vying for positions who told me, yes, Dr. Gunatra, go for it. I mean, you need to break this barrier. You know, you'll be the first Indian. You need to, you know, let us integrate. Let us have an integrated union. And you will be the face of that. And that's what pushed me as well. Because now... I'm sure there'll be so many, first of all, female, it's not only about Indians, even female doctors shy away from running for these positions. There'll be so many female doctors who will do it. And then also this issue of different cultures, different religions will, will, this will make these late women to come forward for leadership positions. So I'm glad that I did it. Yeah. And congratulations, Hati, congratulations to you. I mean, you have opened the door wide for many women and that I think um, inclusion is quite important in the union but then again in the same year you made it to the dental council uh, <laughs> so I think it was just uh, a matter of timing because uh, I run dental dent connect which is also a dental education company and Kenya Dental Association is uh, an association that aims to empower dentists so they, of course, recognized that my skill set would be, um, you know, of use to the union and the, I mean, to the association and the dentists. And I personally always love to work on things like conferences and, you know, programs. And we've partnered with KDA in the past. Like while I was a, while I was working as a county dentist, I mean, I still am. I partnered with Kenya Dental Association to organize a training for community health volunteers in oral health, which was the first in Kenya. So we, I've worked with them. So why not work with them while I'm in the association? So that's what brought me into the association. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Congratulations again on that. Um, so after internship, you were sent to Kiambu County. Most people usually just want to hang around Nairobi because this is um, where the money is, quote-unquote. Mm -hmm. Why did you agree to go to a rural area? And obviously you've talked to colleagues in some places, they don't even have a dental chair, let alone materials to work. Mm -hmm. Why did you agree to go to Kiambu? So, okay, I had an advantage. Gatundu Level 5 was not too far from my home. Okay, I would say it used to take me one hour. So I didn't have to relocate. If I had to relocate, it would have been very difficult. So at least I didn't have to relocate. So that's what um, like allowed me to you know, continue to take up that job offer. And yes, it was a rural area, but um, at least the hospital was had the basic equipment so I was lucky in that aspect another thing is when I was being posted there the chief dentist had actually recognized that I have this passion to do school health programs I had I had a passion for public health and um, he knew the local clergyman there who was already involved in that so he felt that my skill set would be of use so when I got to Gatundu um, level five, yes, we weren't doing procedures. We were only doing extractions. But over time, and I'm not saying it happened within three, four months, over time, like maybe eight months to one year, we started doing procedures. We started doing school health programs. And um, I was very happy with the work experience there because I got to learn and do a lot of root canals. I, I did a lot of surgical extractions. And I think a lot of it was my own initiative as well because um, I had the desire to learn. I mean, I had 
like I mentioned, I had struggled in internship, but I'd made it through. So now I wanted to improve my skills. And what better way to do that than to serve the people who are needy of these services. And I would also learn in the process. So I just dived into work. In fact, I think I used to be there at eight, leave at five. And um, I had to force the assistant to tell me that I have to go for a break at lunchtime because I was like, we have to eat. And, you know, so I, I really enjoyed the work. Mm-hmm. I really did. Yeah. yeah. And, and the work and your fellowship or scholarship. Yes. Um, so while I was in Gatundu, I was first a junior dentist and then our senior dentist was transferred out. So I became the head of dental department. And I'm, I'm always very, you know, I like to go and meet the medical officer, the medical superintendent, the health administrative officer. So I was made to be part of the health hospital management team. And through that, I got to understand the intricacies that go around running a hospital. So when the Australian Award Scholarship application opened up, I had an idea. What is management? You know, what are we looking at and what do I want to come back and do? So it really helped me to fill in a very strong application. And that's that's what I attribute to winning the scholarship. Yeah. What experiences did you gain in Australia for the two years? Okay, first up, I'd like to say that their work ethics are extremely good. Like, that's what I realized. Like, they work 40 hours a week, you know, and they give in their 100% in those 40 hours. So that's what I learned about um, work ethics. Um, they're very innovative. They constantly want to improve their systems. Of course, they are, their health system is very different from ours, but they're constantly working on quality improvement. And um, they they even have a website where you can click online and check, for example, hospital-acquired infections in a particular hospital and compare it to other hospitals. So it's they have this, you know, zeal to improve their health system in a very transparent way. So that's what I learned. Um, I also learned that they're very healthy people. I mean, things like chocolates and soft drinks are not easily available. Really? So, yes, like I would go for weeks without buying soft drinks because it's such a hassle to get some. And I think that's what led me to, you know, even get um, get off them. So they take their public health very seriously. Like even the way they've managed COVID. Yes, we could say it's a little extreme because they've locked up the country. But it tells you that their heart is in the right place. Like they've really placed a lot of emphasis on primary health, especially. Yeah. Are these things that we can um, adopt, we can copy as a country? Definitely. Like s- things like um, for, now Kenya is facing a burden of disease of non-communicable diseases and communicable. So that's we have a high burden of diabetes, hypertension. And then now we are also fighting COVID. So some of the things we need to focus on as a country is how do we prevent people from getting diabetes. So we need to focus on the diet of people. And one of the ways to do it, a simple policy is we should not allow soft drinks to be sold in, for example, areas near hospitals, in schools, in tertiary education centers. And that's what they do there as well. So you will not find soft drinks in a university campus. So that automatically reduces the intake of sugar. Then they have cycling lanes. They have um, areas where you cannot use a car. So, yeah, those are things we need to, you know, copy. And those are really simple things that don't really need a lot for us to implement. Exactly, yeah. So the investment in health 
if we keep focusing on the curative side of it, we will never be able to match the demand. So we really need to focus on preventing disease, yeah, mm -hmm. as a country, mm -hmm. yeah. Now, the number of dentists in this country, I think we are now at about 800 and something, and we graduate even fewer mm -hmm. by the year. Is it that we don't take dentistry seriously in the country, or what What really is a challenge? So um, the issue, I, I'm guessing one of the issues is the training of dentists is an expensive process. Um, but you're right. It all comes down to do we take oral health seriously? Because if we did, we would obviously have more dental schools. So we only have, I think, 920. I just checked mm -hmm. uh, retained dentists on the register for a population of 50 million. That's very low. So we need to be training at least even I would say 300 dentists a year, but even then we would not meet, match the demand. So we as a country need to focus on health and understand all the numbers that we need and increase the number of training institutions. And also after the training, we have to ensure that these doctors who are trained can be absorbed into our system. So we need to also improve the health infrastructure so that these doctors can now be absorbed into the system to provide services to us Kenyans. Yeah, Because what we are seeing now is after internship, mm -hmm. doctors are out stomaching, looking for work because government does not have enough space for them. Um, government has enough and more space for doctors we are, <laughs> what, is we are the, what is the issue yeah then? we're having such a big shortage i mean we have two doctors for a population of ten thousand, whereas the who recommendation is 36 doctors for a population of ten thousand. so that means one doctor is working for 18 doctors in kenya so we have enough space it's just that our investment in health is not enough and we are focusing so much on infrastructure which is buildings you know and that doesn't solve health problems that just gives you a space you can even treat disease in containers for example or I mean disease treatment does not have to be done in a very fancy hospital you just need the human resource who have the right equipment to diagnose and treat so I think our country needs to focus on numbers and see how we are going to meet these demands because if we don't we our health system is very weak and in the next 20 years what will happen it is going to get even worse yeah so no doctor should be tarmacking all doctors should be employed by county governments the ministry of health should ensure that this happens they should play an, they should play a supervisory role i mean we have the who playing a supervisory role so ministry of health should play a supervisory role to ensure that counties meet the basic staffing norms that are required, yeah. Um, Makoeni, I think, mm. it's, it has been given as the all-time example about of how county governments can do to make health accessible. Mm. Is it that difficult for other counties to borrow the same? Or what, what did Makoeni do that other counties are not able to emulate? So Makoeni County focused on primary health care right? And also the governor placed a heavy emphasis on ensuring that um, there's free services in the level one, in the level two, and level three. So in that way, he was able to provide access to the public to visit the facilities. Now, other counties 
I would say, are focusing on infrastructure more than anything else. And that's not the answer to health. The answer to health is strengthening the primary health care. And what I mean by primary health care is strengthening the early diagnosis of disease, the early treatment of disease at a low level, such that before a patient gets very sick, they've already been managed. Uh, only the very few who cannot be managed at the low level need to go to see a specialist. So we need to focus on increasing the number of um, health workers in the dispensaries, in the in the health centers, so that they are able to provide good services to people and solve the, the small problems. Like um, somebody may be smoking, for example, we should be able to tell them what are the ill effects of smoking at that level so that they don't end up with cancer and needing a specialist or a cancer uh, treatment. Yeah. So I think that's what we need to focus on. Yeah. It's to stem disease yeah. from a uh, low level. Exactly. On Friday, we were having this conversation with you about community yeah. health workers, community mm -hmm. health volunteers. Yeah. And we they're not remunerated well enough and they're given like every disease area to cover. That really will take us a much, much longer time to sort out primary health care. Definitely. Community health volunteers, very well intentioned, very well intentioned, but not sustainable because who will work without pay? In those days, people who joined the system had their own farms, they had their own food available, so they could like they did it out of their own goodwill. But how much longer are we going to rely on the goodwill of people when we have our politicians earning so much, also being very corrupt? I mean, why why do we have to rely on goodwill? We need to pay people for the work they do. So community health volunteers should no longer be rec uh, called community health volunteers. They need to be called community health workers. And we need to have more in number for the different kind of diseases, because they are, unfortunately, I'll tell you the truth. I mean, the number of trainings I attend, they are bombarded with information on every single disease, every single disease. So if it's COVID-19, let's train the community health volunteers. If it's HIV, let's train the community health volunteers. They come for the training. But what is the impact? How much is one person able to do? So we need to increase their numbers, pay them well, and we need to not have a disease-centered approach that, okay, today we're only talking about COVID-19. Let's have an all-round approach where the community health volunteer, community health worker is able to talk to the people about how to improve their overall health. And that way we will be able to achieve more. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This calls for a lot of funding, something yeah. that we... Um, I think the last budget we are about just halfway from the Abuja declaration. So how are we going to achieve this? <laughs> so we have to, as um, advocates, we really have to push the government to invest more than 15% in the health sector. Because remember, everything is interlinked to health. So if we're looking at road networks, the better road networks we have to hospitals, that's part of improving health. We need to improve our agriculture. We need to improve so many things. But if we look at it as everything is linked to health, we will be able to give health the, the budget that it requires. And um, another thing that we need to remember is, yes, we may be giving health 8% of our budget, but where are we prioritizing this 8%? Is it in, for example, a disease-centered approach? Like now we are focusing so much on COVID-19. So what's happening to everything else? Can't we focus on a system whereby whether 
tomorrow we have a new disease, a new pandemic, our system is so robust that it can it just needs to slightly readjust to face that new pandemic because what is COVID, what are what were the basics of covid-19 apart from the mask sanitization which is so important it has always been important we need to improve sanitation we need to ensure people have access to washing hand washing clean toilets so if we focus on that so many diseases would be tackled at the same time yeah and I, and i think uh, what you see is quite true because we have seen during covid-19 when people are washing hands distancing mm-hmm. real diseases went down yes. upper respiratory tract infections went down and mm-hmm. yeah it, it, it is true that you know i think looking at a person holistically mm-hmm. may actually be the answer to a lot of the things at a primary level. Exactly. Um mm-hmm. so you see we we've always had disease surveillance officers, we've always had public health officers, but even prior to COVID-19, they were they were so few in number because we've never actually increase the number to meet the population demand and disease surveillance is so important even for diseases like malaria, measles, cholera outbreak which we still face in Kenya. So like i like if we focus on improving that if we face a pandemic like covid-19 it would just be a matter of increasing the number slightly to meet the demand but not to change the whole system of responding to a disease yeah mm-hmm. and i think even what the conversations that are there now is to have health mm-hmm. as part of the national security concerns you know because mm-hmm. you've seen from the pandemic everything Mm-hmm. just went down mm-hmm. mm. so okay now again security securitization of diseases i would say um it it it's a double edged sword because you see for example hiv aids was securitized okay so that gives us so much of donor funding for hiv and uh we have programs that run segregated from the our normal uh, system even covid we have programs that are running segregated from our system so i would say health should just be a priority because if we start making it a security concern then we will only focus on diseases that affect security whereas everything diabetes requires you know our attention hypertension cancer everything requires our attention so we should not move into again segregating our uh, concern, disease concerns yeah okay yeah. what next for you doctorary all the mini hats that you wear so um I at this point in time I want to focus on health advocacy I think um this is the right time we really need to shift our trajectory as a country I mean if we keep going on in this way we will be f- fighting diseases that we should have not we should not be even hearing about even 20 years down the line so I want to focus on health advocacy and then eventually i mean when eventually i would go back into the clinic yeah i would go back cuz dentistry is my passion but for now i want to focus on health advocacy mm-hmm. yeah and i think you're doing a good job at it so far so thank i'm you. sure we'll get to hear more and more of you thank you so much yeah. thank you thank you very much dr anba ganatra she's the deputy national treasurer of kmpdu um she's a ten- public health advocate and you've heard she's really passionate about public health and i think the biggest lesson for me is that you discover yourself discover your passion and go for it 
with that, the sky is the limit. And Daktari, I'm sure we'll be getting to hear a lot more from her, not just at this podcast, but everywhere else, because as you can tell from her passion, she's here to advocate more on health. That's it on Doctors Unmasked with me, Dr. Masi Korir. Join us again next time, same place, same time, as we bring in on board another doctor and what they've been doing behind the scenes, what drives them, what motivates them. And if you have any doctor that you think we should host on this podcast, please feel free to let me know at Dr. Masi Korir on Twitter and we'll be able to bring them on the seat. We'll be able to get them to talk to us about what they do. God bless. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.